0: Welcome to Financial Repression Authority's Roundtable Insight, where the best fund managers, economists, and industry leaders discuss the key investment issues and challenges in the current macroeconomic environment.
1: Hi, welcome to FRA's Roundtable Insight. This is host Richard Benulli. Today is February 29th, and we have David Rosenberg, Peter Bukvar, and Ira Harris. David founded his own firm, Rosenberg Research, after being the chief economist and strategist at Gluskin Chef. The firm offers extensive research and information services with a trial service that we'll post up a link to. He also served as chief economist for Merrill Lynch. Peter is chief investment officer for the Bleakley Financial Group and Advisory. He has a new Substack platform. It offers great macroeconomic insight and perspective with lots of updates on economic indicators. And Ira's independent trader, hedge fund manager, global macro consultant, trading foreign currencies, equities, bonds, and commodities for over 40 years. He was also CME director from 1997 to 2003, and has been also more recently. Welcome, gentlemen.
2: Thank you. Morning.
3: Nice to be back.
1: Great. I thought we'd begin, uh, David, with your global macro view on the economy and the financial markets.
3: Okay. Well, um, I think that what we've been seeing is a a wide divide open up between uh, what's happening with the global economy and uh, what's happening with financial markets. Uh, I mean, here we have, for example, I mean, I know we'll talk a lot about the U.S., obviously, but here we have Germany in a technical recession uh and the dax hits a record high you know uh when does that happen before uh and um you know you've got the same thing i mean i've been on peter as well we've been very bullish on japan for structural reasons but japan's in a technical recession and the nikai just uh managed to uh break out to an all-time high uh and um you could say the same thing about the UK and many other parts of the world, you know, it's it's really uh, a decoupling going on. You've got uh, either recessions or economies on the verge of recession. And I don't know what you'd call a recession in China, but they're certainly going through a, a debt deflation. And the stock market uh, picks up there only because uh, the Chinese authorities, uh, you know, move to uh uh, been uh, short selling uh, at the open and at the close. And of course, the uh, state agencies have been coming in as buyers. And we can argue about China being uh, a very cheap market. Uh, I know that Peter, and I don't disagree with him, is very bullish on emerging Asia. They trade at cheap multiples. But um, as far as China is concerned, there might be a valid reason why it trades at a single digit multiple. So the global economy is um, many parts of it are. Either stagnating or hitting in a recession doesn't seem to matter. Uh, and as far as the US is concerned, everybody seems to have thrown in the towel on the recession call. Uh, I think that it certainly has been delayed, but um, I still believe in the business cycle. I believe in that when you go from zero to 5% interest rates in a short period of time, it is a shock. And that shock was, um, shall we say, um, received an antidote from all the fiscal stimulus uh, and other things that have been going on. Um, but uh, whether or not we're talking about AI, for example, uh, you know, we, we had the internet boom and, and the Fed tightened policy aggressively uh, after the uh, Asian crisis and long-term capital fiasco was over. And we had the internet boom, uh, but it did, didn't stop the economy from going to recession in 2001. Uh, and that's because there was nothing more powerful than interest rates uh, as a... Uh, Albert Einstein, who was a nuclear physicist, but may as well have been an economist, famously said that the power of compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world, and people have forgotten about the power of interest rates, uh, but also that they influence the economy with the uh, very long legs. Uh, and I remember being back at Mother Merrill in 07, under the same pressure today to change my call to the soft landing or no landing, and I'm so happy that I didn't, um, although, the, believe me, the pressure was there. Um, And the lags were long. Back then, the lags were lengthened for a variety of reasons related to the last vestiges of the housing bubble, influencing household cash flows. And this time around, there's been other factors at play, like the last leg of the excess savings file. Um, So uh, uh, I'm not going to apologize for the fact that uh, I still retain a, uh, call it a bearish view towards the U.S. economy. I don't think it is an oasis of prosperity, although it has things going for it that other countries don't. Uh, And so I think that um, uh, the recession that uh, we didn't see happen last year, and I think maybe the lags just didn't have long enough to play through, uh, but I think it's going to show through more forcefully this year. And in fact, a lot of the January data are starting to come my way on that score. Uh, You know, as far as the markets are concerned, um, you know, uh, I, I don't know if I want to go out and say that we're in some sort of massive price bubble, but uh, I would just say that, you know, what is a 22 multiple uh, on the S&P 500 uh, telling you, it's telling you that the stock market is yielding you four and a half percent. We can practically get that right now in the 10 year note and you can get 5.4% on the three month treasury bill yield. So I would just say that one of the big concerns I have um, is less about fundamentals, although I am in the recession camp, but it's more about uh, the valuations. Um, And when you have an equity risk premium that is either slightly positive, zero, or even negative, um, that's a concern for me. Because uh, what it's telling me is that investors who are blindly investing uh, in ETFs or in the indices, they are paying to take on risk instead of getting paid to take on risk. So, uh, I mean, there's lots lots for us to talk about. Uh, I think that uh, the stock market writ large, practically every sector uh, only only um, uh, two sectors are trading below their long-term multiples, and that's uh, energy and it's the REITs. Um, so when I hear people talking about how, well, the stock market, it's a different beast today. It's a digital economy. It's a digital market. It's not an industrial market. Well, that's fine. And of course, we have 30% of the S&P concentrated in technology. Um, but the point I'm making is that uh, even with the ever-changing structure of the stock market and the concentration in these high-flying growth companies, the reality is that nine of the 11 sectors of the S&P are trading well ahead of what their historical multiples are. And you can't say, well, interest rates are low, so uh, um, that's justified because of where the uh, cost of capital is or where the discount rate is. So I've got my concerns. I think that sentiment is off the charts. Um, Peter's done great work on that. Um, but I find that valuations are not a timing tool, but valuations should be respected because at any moment in time, the valuations tell you what your expected potential return is going to be uh, over time. Uh, when the multiple is low, it's a long runway. Uh, when the multiple is high, and especially where it is right now, 22 times earnings. Wow. Um, that's a uh, an ongoingly a source of concern for me.
1: Great, those are interesting observations, David. And uh, what are your thoughts, Peter? And you mentioned David on the uh, your views on the emerging markets in Asia. If you could elaborate also on that, that'd be great.
2: What, what David said in one of his writings of the last couple of days, I've been echoing myself, is that I haven't seen ever this many cross currents flowing through the global economy and 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 the U.S. economy. You know, you have consumer spending at the high end a consumer that's going to concerts, but they're not spending on electronics. Uh, they're traveling, but not buying furniture. The low income consumer is, Wall Street Journal talked about it, they're They're eating more rice and beans rather than, than eating out. Uh, we heard from Dine Brands that owns IHOP and Applebee's uh, talking about how just consumers are going out less, uh, or at least lower-income consumers, everyone looking for value. And what does that say about the economy when you're searching for value? Uh, more so than than you have in the past. You have the, the pace of existing home sales, near 30-year lows, but the pace of new builds doing better. You have manufacturing globally, that's in a recession, uh, but hopes that maybe we're close to bottoming out, but that remains to be seen. Uh, you have government spending, that's just layering on uh, an enormous amount of of uh, government, or, or I should say uh, economic activity, but you wonder what the, the paybacks are going to be, you know, just as we're incentivizing people to build EV battery plants, uh, there's been a collapse in demand for EVs. Uh, so how many of those factories are going to get mothballed? Uh, tr- global trade, very, very modest, uh, as David pointed out, some of the recessions and slowdowns and growth that we're seeing overseas. So there's just this really bizarre confluence of of economic activity that, makes things really difficult to figure out. And and one last thing, you know you look everyone's talking about this AI hype which for Nvidia and and others is real, but capital spending generally speaking is basically flat. And we've heard uh, whether it's uh um what's the uh the, the the Palo Alto, Salesforce, Snowflake all talking about a slowdown in the spend on their software products. And, but maybe that's because businesses are reallocating capital spending to AI related initiatives, but on a net basis, capital spending was essentially flat in the last two quarters of last year, and based on what we saw with core durable goods, uh, showing no signs of rebound in January. Uh, I still think that we have another couple of years for this higher cost of capital world to flow through the economy. We have about 750 to $800 billion of, of corporate debt that needs to get refinanced this year and another trillion next year. Now, a lot of that's getting done. We had a very active February, but it's getting done at higher interest rates than on the debt that's coming due. And one thing that you know we analyze the current data, but we also have to wonder is what economic activity is not taking place because of higher interest rates? What building is not being built because of higher interest rates. What business is not getting started? Because it's tougher to raise equity and debt capital uh, in this kind of environment. So uh, I still I, I still see sort of a, a death by a thousand cuts that doesn't show up like it did in 08, in, in which which David was clearly on top of then. Uh, I think it sort of just chips away. But you know, then there are also, like I said, pockets of strength with travel and leisure. And if you are a, a baby boomer that's finally getting a 5% risk-free return on their savings and they're going out on cruises and they're traveling and they're uh you know finally reaping some benefits from their savings after 15 years in, in the desert looking for interest rate water when rates were at zero uh so it's just really confusing yeah. and and to you know add on to what david said about the markets is in this kind of environment with this higher rate environment and and now historically speaking you can say okay rates are where there should be but the problem is, is that rates now come after 15 years of zero. So that's where the, the shock takes place. And do you want to pay 22 times earnings for this? You know, when you, t- I'm not going to poo poo NVIDIA cause we're, you know, we're longer for some clients, but, and, and the numbers are just off the charts, but when you see a $260 billion market cap increase on a $2 billion revenue raise, that's 130 right. times sales multiple, that you put on that. That tells you that we're in this 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 frenzy that can last, but when rates are this high, uh, it does matter. I do think a part of this as the year progresses is the Fed's balance sheet is gonna be a big deal because there was a time when everyone got excited about QE. There was a time when QE ended and markets fell and we saw what happened with QT and rate hikes in 2018. Now all of a sudden no one cares about QT because they they think that it's being offset by this decline in the reverse repo facility. But uh QT, I think as the year progresses, is gonna matter. I think the I think Jay Powell wants a much smaller balance sheet. And that sort of form of tightening uh is, is gonna sort of establish itself in risk assets. Uh and one last thing, and I know David's talked about this too, as I have, is it's it's extraordinary how tight credit spreads are. It's unbelievable how much risk people are willing to take on the credit side, believing that some Fed rate rate cuts are somehow going to save us, that the Fed taking the Fed funds rate to five and a half to even maybe four and a half is somehow going to cure all our ills, I think is hugely misplaced. And the amount of money that's piling into private credit, I think I get 10 emails a day from some pitch on private credit that... I just don't see how a lot of underwriting is going to end well here and that uh, the belief that somehow the Fed is going to save us on some rate cuts uh, I think is misplaced because a four and a half percent Fed funds rate is far different than zero. And the economic foundation of the global economy for 15 years sat on zero. And this adjustment process is still going to take years to come. And now over time, this will be a good thing that we have more normalized interest rates no doubt but the withdrawal period from zero is not over yet and and lastly to talk about emerging Asia you know when I think about where is economic growth going to take place over the next five 10 15 years Europe is is not growing at best uh U.S growth potential is two-ish and 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 you can say that for you know, other developed economies but To me, the very exciting global growth story is the the growing middle class in Asia. China's challenged, but the size of the Chinese middle class is going to double over the next five-ish years. Indonesia is seeing a sharp rise in their middle class. India, which David and I have been bullish on also, is an extraordinary story. They just printed an 8.4% GDP number for Q4. Uh, Thailand, Vietnam, these are all growing middle classes that are going to be the engine for growth, and it just so happens that half the world's population lives on that side of the world.
3: If I can just add one thing yeah, to what Peter said about, it, about India: yeah, 8.4% sure. yeah, growth, and inflation's coming down. Uh, and I was doing a deep dive, I mean, they are seeing significant, almost like Reagan-esque, uh, type of supply-side growth. Uh, I mean, Modi is, uh, um, a uh interesting uh, person and obviously uh, a huge nationalist and uh, could be argued to be a divider not a uniter but what he's been able to push through in terms of infrastructure improvements uh which was always the big knock the big knock on in india relative to china was uh was the fact that uh, infrastructure was lacking uh, communication power transportation that's all improved dramatically their their, their productivity growth Uh, And this has nothing to do with AI. Uh, This is actually just straight old fashioned uh, infrastructure has been really impressive and their productivity numbers have been rising markedly. Uh, So uh, I think that's why people say that India is expensive. However, I think that they're just much like Japan for different reasons. They're going through a secular positive re-rating of their assets.
2: Just, just to add to something that David just said, I, I work with someone who is Indian, whose family's there, and just to sort of explain like the extent at which this infrastructure build is taking place is that they're reducing travel routes from point A to point B that would normally take seven hours down to two hours with all this highway construction. So it really is extraordinary, the, the leaps and bounds they're, 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 that's taking place there on the infrastructure side.
1: Yeah, the, the infrastructure build uh, very aligned with. Uh, we did a recent podcast with Louis Vincent, gave his views that he mentions. If you draw a line from Turkey to Indonesia, including India as well as other countries, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, massive growth. Look for growth in that area instead of of China at this point. That's what he he had mentioned in our podcast with him. Yeah, your thoughts, Ira, on all of this.
4: Well, okay. Uh, and I know uh, we, if we go, I think we did our first podcast together, the three of us two years ago or three years ago. Yeah. No, it was probably the I think it
3: was early 2020.
4: Yeah. Yeah. that's probably right. And yeah. I will say this. Yeah. And David talks about, you know, seeing the business cycle out and um, yeah. And it's been a difficult period because the amount of, of course, fiscal stimulus, ha- in a non-war, that doesn't mean there's not wars going on. But the last time, of course, we have to go back to the to the '40s to see this type of robust spending. You know, maybe the '60s with the guns and butters approach of the uh, Johnson administration. But it's been very hard, uh, and it's been very difficult on the on the debt markets, as both Peter and David point out, because. Number one, you've had massive central bank intervention. We can only go, we go back two years, just two years, and you had 18 trillion of sovereign debt with negative nominal yields. We've never seen anything like this. And then you throw in, of course, the massive uh, fiscal stimulus. This has been very difficult. And of course, what has it led to? Is equity markets being the recipient of it, uh, but now is we i think we all agree on the payouts to people who you know who own uh one year uh, t bills uh, six month t bills is putting money in people like you know you know i'm of that age bracket and as you know i i would when i was blogging regularly and i would explain to people that you could see this i had a a million dollar t bill in my trading account that in 2020 2021 was earning $3,000, that was 30 basis points. And then in, all of a sudden it's earning 55,000. That's a significant stimulus to people who are savers at their upper end. And as Peter and David both pointed out, that was the group that for 15 years was the recipient of a massive financial repression. That was how it was built. Um, somebody tech, uh, borrowers were benefited and, uh, creditors w- were harmed. And now the markets are, I, it's taken them a long time to adjust to this process, but this group, especially we, we don't bend to anybody because we got very bullish Japan very early, even pr- before Buffett. And I can, mm-hmm. we can go back to those podcasts and listen to them. So I don't, uh, I don't apologize for anything, and we're all gonna be wrong at times. What uh, we're also learning, uh, as, as Doomer put out a piece the other day, doing his mea culpa on things that he may have gotten wrong, and that's absolutely right, global macro. There's so many moving parts, it is a phenomenally difficult. I mean, we're in the we're in the middle right now, where as long as we're talking about Asia, Japan has gotten away, I believe, with uh, great, well, they've been benefited greatly because as long as, with the US raising rates and Europe raising rates, the carry trade has been back in vogue. Now, and that has me, meant that as Japan has held rates negative or at zero and long rates low, people have been, we're back to doing the, the famous carry trade where you borrow in yen and invest wherever else you can in the world, and you generate returns that way, so that's a great risk-on profile. But I would be very careful here, because I think people are going to wake up to the that the yen has been so artificially weak. And yeah, I don't want to hear about the 250 uh, percent in in deficits, because a lot of that is Japan owing owing it to themselves, unlike the United States, which I believe 40, maybe 50 percent. Of the debt is held uh, by people outside the United States, which makes it a far more different dynamic. But the uh, the yen has been so weak on all the crosses, which gives credence. Even you know, as uh, I did a podcast a couple weeks ago with Larry McDonald, and I was really kind of surprised that he brought up the uh, yen yuan, which Peter and I have discussed about. I don't know whether David and I have, but it's been a, a critical element. And it's at levels. uh, I mean, it's one of my most important crosses to me because Bill Clinton taught me that it was important. So we're back at the highs that we've been at. And that's a very interesting chart that the yen has been so weak against the yuan. But I think that's been part of a policy of the United States as everybody was trying to move stuff out of China uh, and reshoring things that they were giving a benefit to to the Japanese and allowed, the Japanese to carry a weaker yen, especially now that the carry trade is back in vogue. But today's February 29th, the last day of the month, and the yen's not the only one. You know, I look at uh, the interest rate differential. One of the other crosses that I love to watch is the Swiss yen chart, and and the Swiss Japanese interest rate differential on the 10-year note is about 10 or 11 basis points that's not a whole lot of carry in that trade so you may as well use some swiss currency if you're looking to do some carry trade i wouldn't advise it by the way because the snb does so much uh, in the markets it makes it a difficult trade but there are other things going on in the world and i and as peter talks about and david looking basically to asia asia is going to benefit a lot here and uh, one other thing and i know we talked about this david back when the united states was pushing especially as things were heating up uh, with Taiwan for, uh, that was a little while ago, probably 18 months ago, 20 months ago. And they were pushing everybody in Asia to spend more on defense. And we talked about that. I said, "That's that's gonna come and bite them in the face because the Japanese ramping up defense spending, they're not coming to the United States to buy their defense goods. The Japanese are very capable of develop of, of manufacturing defense oriented goods quickly, and this will aid and abet them. And I think that's actually helping Germany at this time, because defense spending is no question is going to is going to increase in Europe, and that's going to benefit the Germans. The Germans still have they may not have much of a defense uh, ar- army per se, but they're very active in. Uh, in defense industries. In fact, as Scholz uh, has reiterated several times in the last three or four months, Germany is supplying the Israeli army with a lot of of military goods, artillery, uh, ammunition. And he said, we will not stop doing that regardless. We feel that that's a moral responsibility that we have. So the German defense industries are gonna benefit massively from the fiscal stimulus that's going to take place in Europe, but Germany will benefit. And I think that's why the DAX is moving up on the come.
1: Any thoughts, David, on geopolitical risks and trends affecting the economy and the financial markets?
3: Well, um, I've always said that um, it never really pays to invest around uh, uh, geopolitical events. Um, you want to invest around the economy uh, policy, uh, interest rates, but geopolitical events. Um, I mean, that's not why I've had a cautious view, uh, on say the U S stock market, um, had nothing to do with the fact that we got a war, uh, in uh, Europe and we have a uh, war in the Middle East. Um, I, I never found that investing around geo- geopolitical events was a, was a very good idea. Um, you know, the only point I want to come back to uh, is um, is something that, that Peter Bookfar uh, mentioned at the beginning, which is all these cross currents that are taking place in the data. Um, you know, because if I told people that real gross domestic income, I mean, there's different parts of the national accounts, but because we love spending, we focus on GDP. You know, so GDP is up 3%, but GDI is flat on a year-over-year basis. We've never seen a, a divide that big between spending and income. And, of course, filling that gap is leverage. Well, what sort of multiple do you want to put on that? Uh, you know, Peter mentioned the discrepancies incredible between the existing housing market, which is dormant and sclerotic, and the new housing market. Uh, and... um There's just, uh, you know, cross currents everywhere, even within the employment data. The household survey is flat year over year, and all the job gains have been in part time. As we take full time workers, make them part time. Not all jobs are created equal. Uh, And uh, the non-farm survey, because everybody, including the Fed, worships non-farm payrolls and GDP. GDI and GDP, a huge divide. And the household survey and the payroll survey, huge divide. What do you believe? And then within the payroll survey, which is so bullish, you know, um, 353,000 jobs in January, if you believe the number, and we'll get another one next week. But what about the work week? Uh, And uh, the decline in the work week in January uh, wiped out that employment gain. But nobody talks about that, Um, that the index of aggregate hours worked which is the labor input to the economy is actually contracting. So, because companies don't want to lay people off. So we'll cut their hours. We'll push some to part-time work. Um, and so you've had that other dichotomy like in the jobless claims numbers. And again, Peter's been talking about this. I've been talking about this. That another wide divide is that you have these low levels of initial jobless claims, which is telling you that firing rates are low, but then the backlog of existing claims continues to ratchet higher. And it's telling you that people are having a difficult time finding a job so there's all these divergences uh, and cross currents uh, that can make your head spin and uh, the question will be what what converges on what Uh, but I think that right now the consensus is leading towards the indicators that are showing the economy uh, with a certain verve uh, and panache and ignoring a lot of the other ones and let me just tell you this much this is more on a personal note I have got, um, I'm noticing uh, in my client base, I got 3,000 clients in 60 countries and we're noticing a trend uh, that um, a lot of them, a growing number, have stopped opening up the material. They've stopped reading. And when I try and canvas, why are you not opening up the research that you're paying for? They tell me, we don't want to read a bearish story. So we've tuned you out for the time being. And it just reminds me, you know, when I was at Merrill in Canada in 2000 and word got out because on the investment committee and I voted in the beginning of 2000 to take Nortel out of the top 10 Canadian stock list. Um, word got out that I had done that. Uh, it, it, we never took it out. I, I'm the only one along with Robert Spector, who was my number two guy there. We got voted down, but word got out and I got punished hard in the Canadian I, I vote uh, that year um, and then look what happened and then in 2007 uh, when everybody was throwing in the towel uh, for the recession call the only other person calling for recession in 07 was Dick Bernard Morgan Stanley and uh, all of a sudden I noticed the sales force stopped taking me around to see clients and I said why as my marketing schedule, been so depleted they said nobody wants to hear your bearer story and then guess what In 08. wait uh, no there were weekends i couldn't come back to toronto because i was inundated with requests to come see these clients once the damage was already done so you can use that as a bit of a contrary indicator you know i'm doing my best to look like peter bookvar and like ira i'm trying to exercise i go to mad can i go to the gym two to three times a week. I'm doing my best. <laughs> okay. My trainer told me, my trainer told me uh, and MedCan is a, is high end. And he said that uh, their sales are going down. Yeah. And he said his clients who are business people uh, are telling him that their sales are going down. So I'm talking to my trainer and, and he says to me, I wouldn't walk away from your recession call. Cause he says from the people, what I'm seeing here at MedCan and what I'm seeing, From my clients, this recession that everybody thinks isn't going to happen. This is from my trader. He says, this recession you've been calling for, Dave, is probably starting right now.
1: Interesting observations on your clients. On a
3: more
2: personal note.
1: Yeah. Are you hearing the same thing, Peter, from your clients or the general mood?
2: Well, when you think about it, when you slice and dice GDP, I mean, some parts of the economy are already in a recession. Manufacturing's been in a recession for more than a year. The, the the existing home sale markets in a recession, and when there is not a home that's being transacted, there's less paint being bought, and carpet being bought, and new furniture being bought. And you listen to Home Depot and Lowe's talking about the slowdown in the do-it-yourself business. You talk about you hear about Walmart for three quarters now talking about the choiceful consumer. You know, more to what Dave was saying on the labor market, I listened to what a lot of the uh, online uh, job posting uh, companies say. ZipRecruiter for three or four quarters now has been talking about the slowdown in the pace of hiring and less need for their services. I mean, you're a small, medium-sized company in this country right now. You're dealing with a 9% on average cost of capital. So look, I would say be really between 8 and 12 and if you run into trouble, well, there'll be some generous Wall Street private credit person who will lend you money at 13 or 14 percent. Those those are really difficult financing conditions to not only keep your business if you're not generating free cash flow, but to expand your business. And so I, I think that there, there are plenty of pockets of the economy that are already in a recession. And David's mentioned earlier about Germany and Japan and and the rest of the world that is. Uh, searching for growth outside of the unique stories like uh, India or Indonesia, for example, uh, or even Mexico that's been a beneficiary of this transition of manufacturing facilities uh, away from China into other parts. Uh, So they're already, the low-end consumer, they're in their own personal recession as well. Uh, Not only in how they're allocating their spend, but the savings rate being about 200 basis points below a 20-year average, and if you're not paying off your monthly credit card bill, you're paying 22% interest rates on that. That's a difficult environment to, to make it through. And, and one last thing on the labor market, and David's talked about this for a while, is that over the past year, all the job growth is part-time. You know, what, what does that say about the attitude of, of, of employers about adding to their um their, their, their job base uh, if they're not willing to, to take on full-time workers and they're more interested in? finding part-time people, you know, that, that says a lot too.
1: Yeah, exactly. And your thoughts, Ira, on what Peter yeah, and David me yeah. you know
4: I want to speak to David because I'm not saying that you invest in these countries because of the political events. Now it's like, you know, people who talk about buying gold when war breaks out. That's the biggest foolish trade uh, that I've learned over 47 years of doing this. You, if you buy you know, if you buy certain assets because the new the headline news, that that's a terrible way to invest. And I have the scars from the gold, you know, especially all the precious metals that I trade. You, you know, you you better have a much longer term view as to what you think is wrong with the world. So I just want to speak to that. And I also, David brings up a very important point. He used the word leverage, and that leverage is what's highly involved in this market. I don't think any of us really know how much, but that raises that issue with me about a, a, a phrase that now makes its way into the uh, lexicon, not for everybody, but R-star. And what does R-star mean? Well, I know I know what it means historically, and I know what real yields mean historically. But what they fail to take account, and I mean up and down that Fed group, and all other places, I can get to the Bank of Canada, I can get to, I can get to the ECB, I can get to Bank of Japan. When they talk about real yields, if you don't consider, in, in my mind, the amount of leverage in the system, and the system is highly leveraged because the system was forced to be highly leveraged because that was the basic of the Bernanke plan with uh, portfolio balance channel, going back to, I believe, uh, um, Jackson Hole of 2010, when this was laid out. So the massive amount of leverage in the system, you can't go to higher quote unquote neutral rates. If anything, you have to err on the other side because a highly leveraged economy, as the US has showed you, certainly since uh, I'm old enough to, to do this and probably in the 60s and 70s, a more highly leveraged economy requires real yields to be either uh, zero or, or negative. Uh, and I think that's where David's work will really bear show itself because he speaks to leverage. And I think that leverage issue is a very serious issue. And that's why, you know, all of a sudden you know, Powell, who in December at that press conference had everybody stoked, and I use that word in its full meaning, stoked uh, for six interest rate cuts. And we saw that all the way through, at least through the end of December, early January, that the market was predicated on that. Well, that has disappeared, but I wouldn't take my eye off that leverage ball. So I i, I think that's, that's an important, very important, Phenomenon going on, um, so I, I I know David will probably speak to that. So I'll I'll step back and wait for that.
1: Go ahead, David. Did you want? Uh,
3: yeah. Well, I I think that's a hundred percent. I I see so many people out there claiming that the uh, the neutral interest rate is going to rise over time, um, because of fiscal policy, which is ridiculous because this excess of debts. Is actually a future constraint on aggregate demand. And the higher debts actually is a drag on the real rate. And so is aging population. I, I'm spinning my head reading some of the stuff that's out there for my competitors. Um, you know, uh, you know, all that said, you know, going back to the Fed, um, and, and maybe they're probably responsible for it, you know, I started the business in the mid eighties. The Fed was always important. Monetary policy was always important. Uh, The Ford guidance was always important, but I don't remember a day where an adjective or an adverb or a pronoun causes the markets to freak out. Um, And now, of course, you have people using AI tools to figure at the margin was the last speech more or less hawkish or the last FMC minutes. It's gotten to a point of ridiculousness. Um, but the Fed partially orchestrated this uh, through Bernanke by having people just speak way too much and way too often. And um, and just, I think it was Mary Daly back in December, she's the one that opened uh, the that Pandora's box of maybe we'll start cutting rates in March. And next thing you know, the markets are, what are they going to do? They're going to price it in. And then everybody lines up and says, no, 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 we're not going to do March. We're sticking with three cuts. Um, there's no way. Look, I am I I am bullish on Treasuries. Uh, I like a lot of their characteristics. I don't care about the deficits because you'd find historically that uh, in, in periods where the deficit goes up is usually periods where Treasury yields go down. It's there's, the the correlation is ridiculously low. Um, what's important is um, what's happening with inflation, inflation expectations, the contours, of the business cycle, uh, and. The most important determinant of yields out the curve is expectations of fed policy that's why we had this monstrosity of a rally right out the curve nothing else happened what else happened in december except the view that we're going to have six cuts starting in march and the 10-year note goes to 3.8 and then all of a sudden we go back to 4.2 4.3 and it's only because nothing changed except for the revised expectations what the fed was going to do nothing else changed in terms of fiscal policy or regulatory policy and we could argue about the data weak, data strong. It's just all about the Fed. 90% correlation, 10-year, no yield, and uh, expectations of what the Fed's going to do. But uh, I sort of feel sorry for the Fed because it's sort of like, uh, what are they going to do? How are you going to cut rates with a 22 multiple? Or, or basically you have um, double B spreads, some like 200 basis points below their long run norm. I mean, financial conditions are just too easy. And the Fed looks at financial conditions. So uh, I I think that there's not a snowball chance in hell, unless we get some really, really ugly economic data, like negative payrolls, we start seeing negative GDP, um, that they got to see the stock market break. I, I'm, I'm saying that I am pretty convinced that as they sit around the mahogany table, they're all saying, like, what the hell is going on here? AI or no AI? AI is not really new. Uh, It's okay. It's um, NVIDIA. We we got a frenzy going on here. There's no doubt about it. I'm not going to say it's not real. But the Fed is there saying, how could we have done all this? I mean, financial condition index is about 300 basis points easier than it normally is when we make that transition from a tightening cycle to an easing cycle. There's so many things we haven't seen before. But they're saying to themselves, what the hell is the punch bowl still doing on the bar counter? How is the punch bowl still there? So, um, you know, the thing is that if you are if you think the Fed's going to cut interest rates, which I do, the S&P 500 is not going to be sitting above 5,000 the day that happens. And the multiple is not going to be 22. And uh, credit spreads are not going to be 200 basis points below their long run average and 100 basis points below the average they are when the economy is booming, let alone being in a, some sort of soft landing. So... I'm sort of pull back my views on what the Fed was going to do. I thought that they'd be cutting rates probably. I never said March, but I thought by May or June, it might not be till next year. And, and then at some point, um, you know, the the pressure is going to bear because these earnings yields in the stock market cannot compete. At some point, someone's going to wake up and say, why am I here at a 5%, 4.5% yield in the stock market when I can get 100 basis points better in Treasury bills? At some point, someone's going to wake up and do the math. And so it's at that point. But I think really it's almost all about the stock market. Barring a spring of horrible data, it's all about the stock market, I think, as far as the Fed is concerned.
1: And your thoughts, Peter, on treasuries as an investment asset class, also on Fed policy trends?
2: Well, I just want to add, I mean, TO DAVID WHAT DAVID SAID IS LIKE WE'VE BASICALLY RALLIED OURSELVES OUT OF RATE CUTS THAT THE MARKET THAT SO DESIRED THEM HAS JUST TAKEN THEIR, 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 THEIR CANDY TO SUCH A GREAT EXTENT uh, THAT the, WE we've RALLIED OURSELVES OUT OF IT. AND I THINK, YOU KNOW, THE FED IS GETTING THE, THE INFLATION TRAJECTORY THAT THEY'VE WANTED. Uh, I THINK THAT THEY'RE, THEY'RE FOCUSED ON KEEPING IT THERE AND HAVING INFLATION STAY DOWN, NOT JUST TEMPORARILY COME DOWN. And I think that, that that is their, That's why they're they'll continue to be patient because they don't want to obviously be in a position where um, things curl up again and they're stuck cutting interest rates while um, goods prices move up again. Uh, that's what they think they're waiting for. And I think Jay Powell is going to be less influenced by his dovish peers, and I think is going to be more focused on hey, you know. Economy's hanging in and markets are at highs and credit spreads are tight. Why do I need to do anything? That's why I think a, a, a big focus should be to what happens with the balance sheet here, because that could affect markets. You know, moving the Fed funds rate, the Fed is used to, to influence the economy. It was the balance sheet that was really used to influence asset prices. And this time around, it's amazing that, again, QT hasn't really negatively affected asset prices because of some of the offsets. But I think QT kicks in and where the market goes also depends on how hard a recession you eventually get. I can promise you if the S&P 500 to 3000 those upper end consumers are not going to be spending like they are today. I can probably assure you that a lot of those uh, cruise line vacations uh, in the back half of this year will be canceled if the S&P 500 goes to 3000. So where the stock market goes will be a big influence. Now, on Treasuries, uh, I think that long-end rates are still going to remain elevated. It it is hard, I agree with David, it is hard to sort of draw the line between deficits and rates because for 40 years, uh, deficits went higher, debt went higher, and interest rates went lower. Uh, I think that the bear market in bonds started a few years ago, and that just maybe, and we'll have to see how this plays out, things might be... more that 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 these debts and deficits might be more influential on the margin to where long rates go. Now I'm not saying that long rates spike, but maybe they re- remain elevated than they would be otherwise. Like I would not be surprised if the Fed, if the Fed started to cut short-term interest rates, that long-term interest rates didn't fall that much or even rose if if the markets felt that the Fed was sort of giving up their inflation fight and longer rates would adjust for that. We'll have to see. Uh, I am very closely watching even though at this point, it's very well telegraphed that the BOJ is getting going to get out of negative interest rates. I mean, they're basically telling you it's going to happen and possibly uh, removing why yield curve control and see what kind of influence that has on both the the Japanese yield curve and whether that filters into other yield curves, particularly in Europe and the U.S. There is a relatively higher correlation amongst the different bond markets over the past couple of years in this sort of post QE world that we're in. So that's something that I'm focusing on as well. Um, And that higher for longer in rates, whether it's Fed-driven or market-driven is a real thing. And we still have time to adjust. Uh, Somebody's commercial real estate loan likely came due today. And they probably are having a really difficult time refinancing it if they didn't come to the table with more equity and they didn't have a bank that uh, that was that friendly in extending it out. Uh, so there's a lot of dislocations to be had in this very highly levered world at a much higher pace of interest rate, where I should say level of interest rates, relative to the 15 years leading into 2022.
1: And your thoughts, Ira, on Fed policy? This, this yeah.
4: conversation is great. David, I have to ask, did I hear some... And the equivalence seep into your discussion
3: well it it didn't uh well it, it probably should however look the one thing that we know and this is just based on the imf is that we're going from i mean um two-thirds of the economic growth we had last year directly and indirectly, came from fiscal stimulus that's not recurring and the imf's numbers are such that because look the u.s government i mean the fun and games are over they're running they're running fiscal policy on on a set of continuing resolutions. I mean, come on. The, the, the net drag from fiscal this year is going to be minus 1%. People talk about the chip Act here, chip Act there. Um, that's not the only thing going on. Uh, when you look at overall fiscal policy, it's going to be a negative one percentage point drag on GDP growth this year. But then we have to consider when you're talking about interest rates. The, look, I said before that you're going to find there's times when uh, the deficit balloons and bond yields go down. And that happens a lot in recessions because the automatic stabilizers kick in. But the reason why is because what does the private sector do in economic slowdowns or recessions is they they delever, they deleverage. Uh, so you can't look at the market in a vacuum. Um, the reason why treasuries rally in a recession with booming deficits is because private sector debt is going down. And I'm looking at the data. Look, we know. Look, what's, And what's more important? I mean, we talk about the, the corporate sector, but nothing's bigger than the consumer sector, 70% of GDP. And you're seeing what's happening already. Delinquency rates going up for autos to credit cards now starting to go up for residential mortgages, albeit from a lower level. And uh, we got the this data that I think you commented on, Peter, the National Association of Credit Managers, the NACM Index. And look what's happening in terms of... Uh, Uh, credit rejections, credit application rejections. Uh, They're going up a lot. Uh, And uh, disputes you're seeing, uh, the federal and officer survey still remains that the lenders are tightening. But what's filled in the void have been all these middle market lenders. You said the private credit, how long is that going to last for? And where are they going to get their funding for? So I think that when people say to me, oh, government deficits, government deficits, but what's happening in the private sector? And I think that you're going to be seeing a a lot of unwinding in this excessive leverage of the private sector. Uh, That's going to act as an overwhelming antidote for the boring requirements we're seeing in the public sector. Last year, of course, bond yields went up and we had a booming deficit. But, you know, the reality is that you had a booming deficit, not in the context of recession, but in economic expansion and sub 4% unemployment. Well, you're full employment and you get that sort of fiscal juice, you're going to get bond yields going up. That's what happened uh, when uh, Trump cut taxes back in uh, in 2018 at a time of full employment. The deficit ballooned and bond yields went up. So I'm not saying that bond yields cannot go up with rising fiscal deficits, and Peter actually nailed this last year, but I think that the economic environment is going to change. More often than not, by the way, bond yields do go down when deficits are on the rise, but it depends on what is the macroeconomic climate at the time, because that'll determine the other part of the equation, which is what is debt doing in the private sector? Uh, just remember what the deficit did in 2008, okay? Ballooned. <laughs> and you don't want to be short bonds in 2008. Why? Because we went through a deleveraging. Now, that's an extreme example, but you get deleveraging in the private sector in every recession. And that's why interest rates come down, even with the rising deficit. And I want to hammer home that point
4: so good i'm glad because even i need a, to be hitting the head with a sledgehammer when the private sector because when that's when that does deleverage, it does uh, it has to go somewhere now i i happen to be in peter's camp though i because that's why i think that the curve is going to steepen from where it is now because i think this curve has been so bastardized by all central bank not not just the fed but everybody i mean it's all one policy i could read their statements and I, you know, you want to talk about plagiarism? Well, it's such a, the, the central bank statements from the ECB to the BOJ to the bank. It looks like Claudine Gay was the researcher on him because they're all they all come off of the uh, same uh, uh, artificial intelligence site. But I know I think that's that's really important because I miss that too. Because I look, I'm am a big believer in looking at uh, as you I know you are uh, over the years that you look at government sp- spending, but we forget the private side of that equation, especially in this economy where it has been so levered up. Uh, And we look at data today. So we see that, uh, again, people are being denied credit and people who who are certainly more than credit worthy are stepping back from using it. So yes, I, I see that, but I still think that if that's the case, the Fed's gonna have to get a little more aggressive on the front end and that's really what puts me in that camp where I'm looking for uh, uh, a bull steepener, so to speak, um, especially on the 210 uh, more than anything because, because of that. Uh, do I want to go out on my duration? And not yet. I'd have to see some other things develop in the world. But I'll tell you what, when I look at it globally, and this is where I think you can really hit it out of the ballpark with this, is if the Chinese, and I'm not buying into the China weak China's there's so much that we don't know about China, but, and everybody keeps talking about the currencies, but if I go to Michael Pettis school, which I ab- absolutely believe in, is that I think it's right theoretically, and I think it's right practically, uh, is that in order for China to really enrich its middle class, it can't afford a currency depreciation, that's the old school. And I don't think that that really works because they need to build up their middle class. They have all this capacity. And it, uh, if it's not going globally, if it's not being dumped globally, it has to be absorbed by their middle class. So weakening the Yuan, uh, which is the old playbook, uh, I do not I don't think works very well. But if they were to panic, as some people think, and they were to to, to uh, intervene and weaken the yuan, especially against the yen, well, then I think you're gonna get a global pressure on prices that will uh, speed up whatever we've just talked about. That that will do a lot because global capacity is still vast, and it'll put downward pressure on prices globally. So I'm, and I think the yen is far more critical in this than, um, than a lot of people want to believe because the Japanese look at who are the two biggest car exporters in the world, China and Japan. Uh, And when I saw China's auto export numbers, they're huge. Now, Japan has had a resurgence because of the weekend. And because they didn't go to EV vehicles, they went hybrid and they're killing it in the hybrid market. They're, they are absolutely killing it. As people are stepping away from EVs, hybrid sales are booming. Um, so <clears throat> there's a lot of things in play here that could really, as you say, especially in a highly leveraged economy and the global economy is nothing but leverage. Uh, what's gonna uh, be that uh, proverbial spark that starts that prairie fire? I I don't know. but if it comes via China and the devaluation of its currency in order to enhance its uh, economic prospects, well, then then I think then we're going to get to that in a much faster, much more rapid pace in a total global deleveraging, which will play wreak havoc on global bond markets.
1: And uh, just a final question. Uh, your thoughts and ideas david on investment asset classes that may make sense uh, in these in this environment especially with the divergent trends
3: uh well i'm still um, i i i believe that we're still going into a recession i haven't thrown in the towel um and in recessions um treasuries make you money even even though you could argue, even in the mid 70s and early 70s, um, bonds outperformed stocks. Uh, so I still like long dated treasuries uh, in the uh, equity market. Uh, I think that we're all in agreement that I and, and actually our scorecard uh, for our monthly strategizer document uh, has been bullish on uh, emerging Asia. Uh, we're still very bullish in India and Japan in particular. Um, you could argue that uh, Mexico uh, looks very good and obviously a beneficiary of uh, the French shoring, uh, and there's other reasons. And there's parts we didn't talk about, South America, or Latin America. But um, I, I throw that into the bucket too. I, I think that I, you know, I, I'm not bullish on, I'm not bullish on China. I don't have the visibility there. Uh, it's obviously infected uh, some of the satellites like Hong Kong. But there's other parts of Asia you can invest in. And there's other parts of emerging markets you can invest in too. And uh, and uh, South America uh, has uh, some positives going for it. Uh, in terms of the the U.S. equity market uh, itself, uh, I think that uh, my sense is that it's gonna be active market over passive. Uh, I think that um, uh, that uh, you know the areas you can invest in, in my opinion, is the areas that you'd wanna own if you have my recession view. Um, I'm not going to get into long-term growth or AI, and maybe, maybe these people that say that you're buying these stocks for the long, long run and for the, uh, a multi-year productivity cycle and valuations don't matter, or maybe earnings growth is being underestimated, you know, for these, uh, well, I am going to say mag seven, but maybe it's mag three, or maybe it's mag one. Uh, you know, I had a, a webcast, uh, Of my own a few weeks ago, I had these two AI experts, and uh, one of them said that um, there's going to be a MAG seven five and 10 years from now, but it won't be the MAG seven that we have today. Um, But I'd say I want to invest in things that have some visibility, which means that I want to be very defensive uh, given my macro forecast, uh, whether that's utilities, uh, whether that's, um, you know, which I view as a bond proxy. Uh, the REITs uh, selectively would do well in a lower rate environment. Um, I think you could argue that some of the financials, if the yield curve pivots and steepens, um, the, some of the banks, maybe not the regionals, but the big banks might probably do well under that uh, scenario, um, Healthcare. Uh, so I'd just be concentrating mostly on, you know, and if I'm long equities, how am I going to control for the cyclicality of my portfolio? And how am I going to limit uh, the beta exposure? Uh, that's really what my focus would be on for the next, uh, say, 6 to 12 months.
2: Interesting. Yes, yes Peter? Uh, so the, the way that we've been playing uh, sort of emerging Asia is, is, and, and it's rising middle class, as we were along uh, Macau Casino Stocks, uh, Trip.com, which is the largest online travel agency in Asia, that just reported good numbers Mm. Uh, aia group which is the one of the largest life insurance and broad insurance companies in asia so growing middle class you need life insurance among other financial help Uh, also um, exposure in japan in india singapore vietnam Uh, the the most recent um trade idea that we've put on is is agriculture corn and soybeans in particular not directly, but playing them through the fertilizer stocks. Uh, The fertilizer stocks peaked right after Russia invaded Ukraine, which we had been long going into that, not obviously expecting that, but gifted that from an investment standpoint or otherwise, uh, and sold into that and been waiting to get back in. And now you have the net speculative short positions in corn and soybeans at record uh, highs. Uh, So the mosaic nutrient to name two are very much beaten down. And uh, paying uh, with good dividend yields, cheap valuations uh, is, is is pretty attractive now. Uh, also, when I, I I've been bullish on precious metals for a while, so that's nothing new. I'm a broken record there. But uh, I do have to say that gold trades like a champ uh, in light of, of of higher interest rates and um, sort of a trading range dollar situation. But gold I don't it, gold's never traded this many days in a row above. 2000. So I think that that's a good setup for uh, an eventual uh, breakout to the upside. And I think maybe it'll take silver with it. And the gold mining stocks have just been death. Uh, it's been torturous to own them. But uh, I do think that uh, it's hard to see how uh, they get, can get beaten up even more, even though I probably have said that in the past before as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. And your thoughts, are? I think you've mentioned also you're surprised on the gold performance.
4: Yeah, the gold, you know, it, I think all three of us, if we took out our whatever measuring stick we use, especially in regards to real yields, and I'm not talking about on the tenure, because that's not what I'm looking at, the real yields. I'm looking at it. If you're fighting inflation, you see you, you jack up rates on the overnight money and short-term yields, high, high real yields on the short term will usually – destroy gold. And I've learned through the Volcker years. Um, I know what my inner Volcker feels like, uh, emptying my pockets at times, but I learned a lot of lessons, very valuable lessons. Um, yeah, gold is, uh, gold has been an amazing performer because again, you know, where I was looking for 1580 to 1630 as a very correctable area after all this once the Fed start raising rates doesn't mean i was sure i was i haven't been short i i respect what i see and i've owned gold against a lot of the currencies which has still been a good play uh i have really i was long a little bit this morning i'm i'm trading it i'm not getting married to it but as peter talked about and i and i talked about uh i think that when peter and i w- were on we talked about it because uh one of the great global macro traders, uh, Druckenmiller, had come out that he was rolling out of the so-called some of his mag sevens and buying um, Newmont and and Barrick. And uh, from the day that we talked about it, uh, Newmont dropped $4 because on a bad earnings report that's up uh, nicely today, and I've actually started buying some, but the gold stocks are miserable. I mean... you know, it's, it invokes uh, Mark Twain's view that a gold mine is a hole in the ground with a layer at the top. But we know that bad management is bad management. And no matter how precious the asset you control is, bad management can run high quality assets into the ground. So you have to be careful with them. But they can't stay this uh, divorce for a long time, especially with the yield. And, you know, between they're both paying, uh, Newmont cut their dividend, so they're both probably paying about 2.8, 2.9 in dividend, which is not bond like anymore, but it's still, it's not nothing. And so I want to see if there can get a little momentum into the gold stocks. I I have been buying some, I'm still very bullish on the the Japanese banking sector. I think that is still massively underperformed relative to the rest of the Japanese market. And as some people will criticize me going, well, Japanese banks are this and that my favorite one is Tokyo Mitsubishi, and it's not just for what goes on in Japan, but Tokyo Mitsubishi. And the fact that again, uh, it's uh, it's ad nauseum, but they own 23% of Morgan Stanley. And if they, if the boards would talk to each other and get their their uh, crap together, eh, Tokyo Mitsubishi become a major footprint in wealth management in Asia. And as we've all agreed, that's where the wealth creation is really taking place. So the wealth management uh, business throughout Asia can be very, very lucrative. And and that's been UBS has done so well because they realized what was in Asia and their wealth management business has gotten, first of all, a lot better, but it has a huge footprint in Asia, which is what started really buying that. So I I mean, these are all things that I like. I still like the commodities, Peter, talked about it, the ag sector, you know, China can slow down all you want, but they're not going, the ag sector isn't going away. I love Bungie because Bungie has a big presence in Brazil. Uh, Therefore, and Brazil has become a a major, uh, the largest producer of grains, the largest producer of soybeans in the world. So all these are out there, they pay nice dividends. Yes, they're gonna correct. And if you wanna see how the stock market is at times just so Ridiculous when Bungie was put into the SP 500, it had an 18 rally that day, only to take the whole rally away and more over the next preceding week. So, you know, some things are just preposterous in the, in the way the market treats and the way the passive investor investing forces certain participants to do what I would consider to be. I'm not gonna say stupid things, but ill-advised. Uh, it's a much softer word. So I'm still looking at these things. I'm, I I don't own an American bank. Uh, that's to my detriment, because JP Morgan has certainly done well. Bank America, eh, Wells Fargo, eh. I do own some preferreds in them, but I don't own any of the equity. I like other global banks and it's still, the European financials are interesting to me, especially Comer's Bank, which has been a dog for, I can go back uh, to 07, 708 when it was just like Deutsche Bank was a very beloved but I love I love Commerce Bank and I like it even more because when I see that uh, Ken Griffin from Citadel is looking to get into the European financials and especially again and, and I stress this that if Europe Europe which does not have a uh, a a bond broker uh Situation like the United States, we don't have that. They don't have that type of system. But if they go to that, where they go to a primary, uh, broke where bond broken system, they will demand that you be uh, domiciled because that's what the ECB paper of like 2017 said. That if they go to a a bond uh, situation like that, that uh, you will have to be domiciled in Europe that to me makes commerce that much more advisable. I, I can't believe that somebody like Ken Griffin isn't going to start moving that way. Cause it's such a cheap way to get into that. So, uh, it's just one of those things that I like. And they started paying a dividend again, which is always important to me, but those are the types of things I'm looking at. I'm not touting them. I always advise, go do your own work. If you think the idea is mm-hmm. good and find your own risk levels, cause I'm not setting them for yep. you because you're not paying me.
1: <laughs> okay. Great. And just uh, where can our listeners learn more about your work? Uh, David, do you have any special offers on uh, like a trial of your research? Uh,
3: Everybody on this call uh, will receive uh, a three-day free trial of everything that I do. Um, So um, if you provide the link, that'd be great. Or come to... uh, information at rosenbergresearch.com and uh, we'll get you signed up Uh, fits in with my deflation view think about that a whole three days with my favorite four-letter word that starts with f free
2: (laughs) awesome
1: okay great and peter
2: yeah that price uh wealth management services they can uh, if you're interested you can check us out at bleakly.com. And uh, if you care what I have to say every day, you can check me out on Substack and trial it there as well.
1: Yeah, And Ira. Uh,
4: Basically all I'm doing right now is the podcast with the Financial Repression Authority. And the fact that, you know, I get to sit with David Rosenberg and Peter Buchbar amongst others, to me, these have such great value. When you go out there, the fact that, you know, we can interchange these ideas and really get through them, uh, you know, I love this. So, uh, you know, I think, we, we, I love to go back and listen to old ones I did with David and I and Peter. So there's so much great, dis- when you can f- discuss like this, you can ferret out real ideas and you can, and as David said, the people aren't opening up because they don't want to read that. That is so anathema to the way that I think all of us, because we have high standards, the first thing I read every day is people who I did who I know I'm going to disagree with because maybe they're going to enlighten me as to well I didn't realize that you know and there's an opportunity there. I I don't understand so when David said that they don't open it because you know it's like no I that's exactly who I was. well let me read that. Uh, you know what is he seeing that maybe I'm not seeing? What is she seeing that I'm not seeing? I want to that's where I want to start my day. Because I, want I, to I will never
2: not read David's piece every day, whether I agree with him or not. I will never not okay. read that every day. I can be on vacation. I can be anywhere. It has to be read. <laughs> well, absolutely. That's uh, that's, yeah. that's I, I need
3: I need more people in the fold like you guys.
4: Well, you know, <laughs> you know that's you know that's that's easy. people say, "Well, Rosenberg isn't right," I said, "It doesn't matter. You want to take away his." 40 years of doing this and you want to look back if you would have yeah he may be early and you know what any technician that i know any chartist that i know early is wrong yeah i get it but that doesn't mean that you're not prepared for what's coming down and that's what i want to be you know a lot of people i was early in 05 06 and people kind of laughed at it but by 08 and i was just having this discussion with somebody when the market was down 45 percent and my kids have been yelling at me because I managed their, their accounts that we had put together in 07. They're going, Dad, you're not in. And then when they saw the returns after 08, they go, How did we make five percent? And everybody's down all this money. I said, Yeah, I know. Now you're gonna come back to, to my brokerage services. I'm gonna I'm gonna raise the fees I charge you. Yeah, mm-hmm. go, Yeah, yeah, sure, Dad. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> but but that's the case, you know, and you want to be prepared because, yeah, it, again uh they're they're hurting was that your piece today David? on hurting yeah i think it was you mentioned it uh it's it's very uh no i want to i want to read people who i respect who i who i disagree with because what am i missing here that's the most important thing so uh when da- when david said that i was i was really kind of laughing because uh, but I've learned this over time. You know, I, I've been lucky and I've had good, great mentors. Uh, listen, i am been very close with Bernard Connolly, who is the head economist at, at AIG London. And I said to him in 08, I said, you know, Bernard, you put out such great work. It's too bad nobody at AIG ever read it.
2: <laughs>
4: so, David, that's the greatest compliment I can give you.
3: Well, thank yeah,
1: you, sir. Great, great, great words of wisdom. And yeah, it's been a fascinating discussion. Whirlwind tour around the world, global perspective. Thank you so much, David, Peter, and Ira. Thank you. It's
2: great Get being on again.
0: The FRA Roundtable Insight Show is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the show each involve their own unique risk factors which are not discussed on the show. Any discussions among the panel participants or responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the panel participants and do not take into consideration the listener's suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Please be advised that you invest or speculate at your own risk.